Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into everything you're talking about in the game of football. Big podcast for you today, news on Kylian Mbappe and his intentions regarding a move next summer, as well as the movements of one of Europe's and possibly the most effective sporting director of the past few years. Of course, we have to talk about Harry and of course, all the latest news in the window as it closes as we are recording. I'm Ian McGarry, and with me, as always, is the guru Duncan Castles, who has been taking a lot of stick on our social media channels. I'm sure you all have noticed um, regarding Manchester United, Bruno Fernandes, Harry Maguire. Um, it seems to me that a lot of you think that Duncan's got an agenda, but I can absolutely assure you that on the Transfer Window podcast, we report facts and information. Uh, Duncan, I hope you're not feeling too bruised after the last two or three days. Uh, feeling fine, yeah. No, the only agenda is to report accurately. <laughs> indeed, indeed. That is our agenda, that is our mission statement. And in doing so, we bring you big news about the France striker Kylian Mbappé, whose representatives have made their first delicate moves into uh, moving the PSG striker next summer. Uh, Duncan reported, of course, that Mbappé has told PSG wants to leave the club uh, in the next 12 months or less, uh, given we're now in October. And it, we have learned that his representatives have been in contact with both Barcelona and Manchester United. Uh, and they have, in a very kind of novel way, Duncan, they have effectively produced an interview document for clubs so that they can answer questions that Kylian Mbappe and his father, who is his agent, as well as an entourage of advisors, including legal, accountancy and financial, uh, want answered before they make a decision on which club Kylian will move to. Um, not quite the normal thing to do, but the questions that are being asked, are, of course, apart from what will the player's salary and uh, on personal terms be. Interestingly, they also want to know uh, who the coach or projected coach will be, both not for next season, but in the next two to three seasons. They've also asked for details on the club's ambition regarding their sporting project. And also very interesting uh, in the modern day footballer, they've also asked about a legacy project which Kylian Mbappe wishes to develop in the uh, shape of a foundation uh, in the player's name in which he will donate a percentage of his annual salary directly to charities and has asked if the club what they would do as well in terms of either equaling or bettering Mbappe's donation himself. Now, I don't say that I'm surprised about this, Duncan, in the sense that Mbappe is clearly um, already, if not the next absolute superstar of world football. It's clear he will have his choice of clubs. But this is a novel way of going about 
um, looking at his next destination, that has to be said, because obviously, traditionally, the clubs come to him and make him an offer uh, and also have to go to his club, of course, and find a financial uh, agreement with regards to a transfer fee. So this is, um, this is probably the way modern football is going to go for elite players. Look, this doesn't surprise me at all. It was uh, one month ago that we reported that Mbappé had informed Paris Saint-Germain that uh, he intended to leave the club at the end of this season when his contract will be down to one year. So essentially saying to them, if you want to get a transfer fee for me, this is your opportunity next summer. I intend to go. If you don't let me go next summer, um, I will leave as a free agent in a year's time. Um, he has, as we, we said in that, on that podcast and other podcasts, he's been very strategic about his career. Um, he had the opportunity to choose between some of the biggest clubs in the world when he moved to Paris Saint-Germain. He had offers on the table from Real Madrid, Manchester City and PSG. He had agreed to go to Real Madrid. He decided to step away from that move because he learned that Cristiano Ronaldo might be leaving that summer and he didn't want to come into Real Madrid and be perceived as the direct placement for Cristiano Ronaldo because of the pressures that would place upon him and, and the way in which it might hamper his career development. The One of the advantages of going to PSG was Neymar was ar arriving the same summer, so the focus of attention would be on him. Another was that he got to stay in a league where he already knew how to play and already knew how to succeed in. Um, Long-term planning, strategic planning, has been very much part of his career from a very early age. And if you step back and look at the process that he is, intends to go through, which has moved to one of the top clubs in Europe, and we told you on the podcast that clubs he were in, interested in included Manchester United, Liverpool, Barcelona and Real Madrid, then... <laughs> This is a sensible way of doing it because you know all of those clubs will be interested in signing you. Um, he is a generational talent. The, the perception in football is he is the man who's going to succeed Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo as the best player in the world. Therefore, these clubs will want to sign him. So he's in a position of strength where he can say, actually, um, I've got questions about you. Do you suit what I need in my next employer? Who's the coach going to be? What is your strategic plan? As well as all the, you know, the, the stuff which are standard parts of negotiation. How much are you going to pay me? Um, how those deals are going to be structured? What the bonus structure will be? Um, release clauses and contract, etc. Um, this, yeah, it, it, it fits with the way Mbappe has worked so far. And, and it's an entirely intelligent way to work when you have the leverage he has in the market and you know it's no coincidence he's leaving it to next summer when his contract's down to one year because as i say that gives paris the ability to get some compensation for him but allows him close to the maximum in terms of choosing his next club and and uh, and getting the salary and the, and the conditions he wants there interesting duncan as well that um, manchester united have already been contacted about this um only problem I see with that is that they don't seem to do any business until the last day of transfer window deadline. Um, so even if they've got 10 months or, or so, or sorry, probably about eight, and eight months to get this deal done if they want to do it, uh, maybe they will still be haggling over, you know, 
how many packets of crisps um, Kylian Mbappe might want as part of his deal uh, on the last day. Well, it'll be interesting to see how they answer questions about the coaching and the direction of the club and whether they their answers are uh, sufficient to convince Mbappe that they are the best option in the market at the moment. You'd, you'd have to think that someone who's being as strategic about his career as Mbappe has been when given the option between these elite clubs in football is not going to say Manchester United is the right one for me in the condition Manchester United are in at present. I just wonder though, Duncan, you mentioned four clubs, Barcelona, Madrid, Liverpool, Manchester United. Why are we not including Manchester City in this conversation? Clearly with Sergio Aguero approaching the end of his career and the end of his contract next summer uh, with Manchester City's wealth and resources, that they would not be included in the conversation as yet because our information so far is that certainly Manchester United, certainly Barcelona, and we believe Liverpool and Real Madrid will all be given this same questionnaire, if you like, from Mbappe's representatives regarding what he needs to have satisfied regarding his next move. But no mention of Manchester City, it just seems slightly odd. I'd fully expect Manchester City to be involved and interested. Um, it's obvious that they have to improve a striker because uh, Sergio Guerrero's time is coming to an end um, and they haven't been happy with Gabriel Jesus. As, as we reported previously, they were ready to sell Jesus last summer to Borussia Dortmund, but the player refused to move. Um, they were very interested and, and had Jesus gone, would have per further pursued their attempt to get Jean-Felix from Benfica, who went to Atletico instead. What I reported on that podcast in September was that the four clubs that had been mentioned by Kylian Mbappe as clubs he was interested in going to. And I think Liverpool are very prominent here. And, you know, obviously he has been very public in his praise for Jurgen Klopp and for Liverpool and the way they play football. It's no secret that he admires that team. But yeah, um, I would fully expect Manchester City to be involved in this conversation. Maybe they have to contact um, Killian's father and ask to have the uh, questionnaire sent to them. <laughs> I suppose I was kind of being a bit kind of mischievous there and asking a leading question, uh, one which we probably won't get into today. And that is maybe it's because Manchester City can't answer one of the key questions right now, and that is who will be the coach next year. More on that to come on the Transfer Window podcast, of course, as we get into the season. Duncan, you've got some news for us on, as I said at the top of the show, um, probably the most successful sporting director in Europe, uh, given his record, mostly at Monaco, but certainly at Lille as well, Luge Campos is uh, having a bit of trouble in terms of being in uh, a bit of conflict with uh, his club, current club, and may well leave Lille and therefore be available, making him, I would have thought, a very attractive prospect for any club in Europe, never mind in the Premier League. Yeah, I, I mean, this is moves quite nicely on from killing Mbappe because Mbappe was one of the players who campus insured and secured at Monaco um, and saw and helped develop his career to the point where he became the most expensive teenager 
in the history of football in that 180 million euro transfer to Paris Saint-Germain. Just one of many players, young players in particular, that Campos has identified at Monaco uh, in that case. And then subsequently in three seasons at Lille, um, put into the first team, saw their value increase uh, dramatically and sold to the more powerful clubs in Europe. Um, I understand that he has totaled over 1.5 billion euros of sales from transfers over just the last seven years with Monaco and Lille. Um, Lille in those three seasons have gone from 17th to second in um, Ligue 1 uh, into the Champions League place that season. And then last season with the COVID curtailed season, they finished at fourth, so got European football again. They have made over 350 million euros of profit in the transfer market in those three years, as well as seeing that seeing that um, massive improvement in sporting performance on the pitch. It's kind of the holy grail for a sports director at present, all the more so in an environment which is the economies of football has been massively affected by COVID. So so buying the right players, being able to identify talent that turns into uh, top performers, which I think has been his real skill, uh, or the most obvious and most prominent of his skills in that period at Monaco and Lille, should be of more value than ever before. And, and my understanding is that the biggest clubs in Europe are aware that he will be leaving Lille and our interest in kind of jockeying for position to try and hire him. Um, I think there's one offer on the table already from AS Roma, um, but other uh, more powerful clubs, I think, also have a strong interest in him. Situation is that he has asked the owner um, of Lille, Gerard Lopez, to be released from his contract um, following disagreements over clubs' administrative policies related to transfers. We talked about some issues in the Gabriel transfer and how he went to Arsenal rather than Napoli, um, which campus feels undermined his position um, and uh, and feels, I'm told, that uh, it makes it impossible for him to work under the current administration. He's under contract for another two years, but has asked to be released from that contract and is not... Um, working at the club at present. So subsequent to the the European transfer window closing, he has gone back to his home and has been effectively working to rule from there um, rather than being present at the training ground. Um, Lopez, I'm told, wants compensation for his exit, which um, which seems quite... Uh, quite demanding on his part, given how much money Campos has made him and the club through transfers during that that three-year period. Um, It's going to be very interesting to see uh, who hires him, where further offers come from. Roma had tried to hire him previously when they were looking for a replacement for Monchi, turned down that proposal. I think he, he will be pretty selective about the club he goes to. He'll want somewhere where it is possible where he has the resource to succeed, um, where he can use his skills properly and have a a degree of uh, control over which players come in, how long they stay for and and where they are moved to. Um, Famously, he was Jose Mourinho's proposal uh, for Manchester United when Ed Woodward and the Glazers started 
uh, briefing that it would be a good idea to bring a sports director in to solve the problems at the club. He was not um, interviewed at any uh, extensive level by United, despite that recommendation from the manager, Pro possibly because of that recommendation from the manager. Um, and I, I think there's, there's probably still quite a lot of Manchester United supporters who want a sports director in at Manchester United and, uh, and wouldn't be disappointed if uh, someone like Campos was brought to the club given his track record over that uh, seven-year period at Monaco and Lille. You do have to wonder, Duncan, when we, it's a subject that we've discussed at length. It's a subject that our listeners have discussed at length with us. Uh, on our social media channels um, with regards to Manchester United, transfer policy, the lack of sports director, uh, who takes the decisions on which players are bought and sold, etc. Uh, because uh, it has to be said, their um, hit and miss uh, approach uh, does not seem to be paying off. Um, speaking of which, of course, uh, Harry Maguire has had a very turbulent week uh, I'm sure Luis Campos would have had something to say uh, if he had scouted Maguire and uh, whether or not he was um, the right guy to bring in for £85 million. However, uh, Maguire is at Old Trafford. He is the captain. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, who is not himself enjoying the best of times at this uh, moment in the season, uh, has a difficult decision to make as the team face Newcastle United. And whether or not he does what a lot of uh, ex-professionals and pundits have called on, and that is to give Maguire a rest uh, in the wake of his red card for England. Uh, generally very poor performance in that game against Denmark as well. I mean, having two yellow cards in half an hour and spinning yourself off the pitch is not clever by half. Uh, but not just that, obviously, since the events of the summer in Mykonos and his arrest and conviction uh, there, and also a retrial hanging over him for probably another eight to nine months, seemed to be having an effect on the player's mental state. I'm surprised, Duncan, in some ways, uh, that Gareth Southgate, um, not that he says that he supports him, I totally agree with that. You know, you, as a manager, you can't throw your player under the bus. But that he didn't be, he wasn't more empathetic about Maguire and saying maybe he does need some time out. All he said was he's a big character, he'll bounce back, which is kind of very platitudinal in terms of the phraseology, uh, in terms of football, uh, people saying, oh yeah, you know, these are big tough guys, they'll be fine. Because it looks to me like Maguire is not fine. Uh, and you have pointed this out through the facts of his performances, through the statistics of his performances, and just generally looking at the guy as well. He looks a little bit shot to pieces as far as, far as I can see. Well, I can tell you, I'm sure that had Luis Campos been asked whether Harry Maguire was the solution to Manchester United's centre-back problem, we would have said definitely not, do not buy that player, and do not buy that player for that price. Um, he was not by any means the only one. You, you only have to go back and look at our podcast when that transfer was being discussed. And we had a number of guests on discussing it and we discussed it ourselves. And we said that he's clearly not a fit for the type of football that Solskjaer says he wants to play. Uh, Solskjaer says he wants to play high line attacking football. 
Maguire has a problem with pace. He has a problem with being caught on the turn. He has a problem with position. Um, and he gets caught out and he doesn't have the, the, the speed to recover those mistakes. So you cannot play high line with a, a defender like that. I think Manchester United were making themselves hostage for fortune by paying so much for him. So they put additional pressure and attention on the player and paying so much in, in terms of salary. And you know the, the errors in, in his play were evident early in last season and, and I think got worse as the, the season progressed. I'm surprised by Southgate that he is still playing him. Uh, I see what Southgate said after the Denmark game. He said he's having a difficult period and in these periods you learn a lot about yourself. You learn who's there for you in those difficult times. You'll come through it. You'll be a better player and a stronger man for it. I mean, if Southgate knew he was having a difficult time, and, and as you say, it's pretty obvious that his form has been well off regardless of anything else um, around him, then he shouldn't have him in the team. I, and that uh, the red card he received against um, Denmark, I, I think he was unfortunate with the second yellow on Kasper Dahlberg because he did actually get the ball before he caught Dahlberg, but he was, you know, he was forced into that lunging tackle because of he, he'd miscontrolled the first ball. And he didn't really need to do it because it was about, you know, it was about 15 yards from England's halfway line anyway in Denmark's half. So he could probably have got away with letting Dahlberg run onto the ball and, and allow someone else to make the recovery for him. But that first tackle on Yusuf Poulsen could easily have been a straight red card in itself, coming at pace from behind, um, hitting him with both legs, um, catching Paulson trapping him with his legs. It's, you know, it's the definition of a dangerous challenge and, and therefore would have merited a red card if, if the referee had decided to give it for that one foul. That in what was minute five of the game and on the touchline deep in Denmark's half, again, not only a dangerous tackle, but a completely unnecessary tackle. I, I think, look, Solskjaer's got a big decision here because he is under a lot of pressure himself. Um, they have been appalling in all three Premier League games they've played so far. They were beaten comprehensively at home by Crystal Palace, then lose 6-1 to Tottenham, and in between um, are outplayed by Brighton and only get a, a result because Brighton hit the post, hit the woodwork five times, and uh, the referee gives them a penalty courtesy of VAR after the final whistle has been blown. Um, they have a very difficult series of games coming up, albeit their match next week against PSG is easier than it could have been because PSG themselves have significant problems at the moment with Thomas Tuchel at odds with the board, um, COVID issues and injuries, and they expect only to have, according to Tuchel, 11, 12 or 13 players available for tonight's game in Nîmes and will they, he thinks also be short of numbers for Tuesday's Champions League tie. So that could be an opportunity for Solskjaer to get the kind of result, which you have to say he's got in the past when he's been in problems, when he's had periods of bad results. He's managed to turn up these victories uh, against the bigger teams, which have made people think, oh, uh, he, he does have something about him and he will get it right um, down the line. But he can't afford many more bad results. And the way Harry Maguire's playing at the moment, he's clearly a liability. 
Then you have the question, if he drops Harry Maguire, who does he make captain? Um, because he's given Maguire the captaincy, I think, prematurely uh, last season. Um, he has already last season stripped the captaincy from David De Gea. So if he goes back to De Gea, he'll be moving back on that decision and giving it to someone who's, whose form is in question himself and who's under pressure for his position from Dean Henderson. Um, Paul Pogba would be an option, but last season, again, he had the option to make Pogba captain. He decided not only to make Pogba play a League Cup tie against Rochdale, but make a teenager making one of his first uh, competitive starts for the club, Axel Tuanzebi, captain in his place. And, and we saw the performance he got from Pogba as a result of that. And um, I think damaged his relationship with Pogba there. Marcus Rashford, I think, is a, is a, an obvious option and um, you know, has shown his leadership in off-field matters in, in an amazing way in recent months. I'm also quite interested whether he chooses to to give the captain's armband to Bruno Fernandes, who was captain at Sporting. Um, he would be able to make a statement with that in terms of uh, the issues that there have been between Bruno Fernandes and, and himself and the reporting on that, which you can go back to uh, this week's earlier podcast to see um, what we've reported about Solskjaer's um, status with Bruno Fernandes. Um, he praised Bruno Fernandes for speaking out after the, the Portugal game about his relationship with Solskjaer. And I can tell you that happened after Solskjaer um, talked to Fernandes um, before the match. Uh, and I'm told by a source that Bruno Fernandes was um, attempting to clear up his mess in making that uh, interview which he requested, again, requested the Portuguese TV to ask him about um, his relationship with Solskjaer before that game. So there's an opportunity there for Solskjaer to kind of make a statement and say, look, my relationship with Bruno Fernandes is so good, I'm giving him the captaincy. Whether that would be a clever thing to do or not um, is, an, is an entirely different matter, um, given where Fernandes's form has been at the start of the season. Some reservations within the camp about his... Um, let's say, his uh, forthrightness in the camp and, and um, his demanding nature, which is something that's carried on from his time in Portugal. If you go and do some research on how Fernandes was at Sporting, you'll find that he came into conflict with multiple managers, with fellow players and with the administration of the club. Um, it's nothing new for him. So uh, I think if he decides to give Fernandes the captaincy, he's, he's handing quite a lot of power to someone who, as we reported on the podcast, has doubts about Solskjaer's um, strength as a manager and ability to drive the team forward. When I uh, read the quotes, Duncan, uh, from Bruno Fernandes from Sport TV, uh, saying that, uh, of course, he respects uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, etc., and uh, he didn't say anything about criticising his fellow players, etc. Just reminded me of that old phrase, um, which always seemed to happen during international breaks of press officers around the Premier League uh, saying, it was a bad translation. It was lost in translation. It was badly translated. That interview didn't happen. And it reminded me of an interview I did with uh, Patrick Vieira when he was on international duty with France, in which he told me 
in English, because Patrick's English is excellent, that he was considering his future at Arsenal and wondered if Arsenal could meet his personal ambitions with regards to trophies and this under heavy speculation that Real Madrid wanted to sign him. And then getting a phone call from the Arsenal press office saying, where did you get that interview? Uh, Patrick's told us that it was lost in translation. (laughs) (laughs) And he's saying, well, that's interesting because we both speak English and that interview was done in English. (laughs) So I'm not sure it was lost in translation at all. So you might want to withdraw that comment. Anyway, um, I'm sure everyone who's listening uh, has had experience of that at their club uh, during the international breaks. It's funny you say that, Ian, because one of the first interviews I did um, when moving to England as a journalist from Japan was with Gilberto Silva, um, which was on international duty um, with Brazil, actually in Leicester, I think, if I remember correctly, that's where where he was at the time. Um, and it, you know, it was a, it was actually the kind of interview you'd think a club would be happy with because Gilberto was under quite a lot of pressure at the time. He'd not been in English football for very long, and there was question marks over whether he was the right fit to what was a great Arsenal team. Um, and uh, and we discussed it, and uh, and I, I think it was, it was essentially a very positive interview explaining the adaptation process and his confidence that things would go well, which he was obviously fully entitled to hold and demonstrated uh, in the in the years going forward. But I also got a phone call from Arsenal asking, how had I got that interview and why hadn't I requested their permission to interview the player? And I, I'd just come back from three years in Japan where uh, you had access to every single player at every club after every match in a mix zone. You, if you wanted to speak to a player, you went up to the player, said hello, and asked it if he was happy to talk to you. Um, and that was exactly the process I'd uh, I'd gone through with uh, with Gilberto and and Brazil training. So I, I was most amused that Arsenal were trying to control interviews um, on international duty of their players. When the stuff was was positive, and there was uh, there was no lost in translation complaints to be made by either them or the player following the interview, but that's uh, that was Arsenal's way, and I and and I think probably still is Arsenal's way. Well, our Amanda, much missed, <laughs> and certainly not forgotten. Uh, that's the Arsenal head of media at that time, um, and we do love her despite her matron-esque type approach to uh, calling journalists up after the interview has been done. We have to talk about what was supposed to be Project Big Picture Duncan, but turned out to be Operation Dab Squib, uh, as it turned out. Um, As we mentioned uh, in the podcast earlier this week, even before the Premier League met uh, to have its discussion on the subject on Wednesday, we uh, predicted exactly what happened, and that is that Rick Parry, the chairman of the EFL, would be thrown under the bus uh, as the spokesman for what was essentially driven by Joe Glazer and FSG and John W. Henry, which is what has happened. The Premier League itself, in bizarre fashion, Duncan. Even Manchester United 
and Liverpool, the two driving forces, signed the statement which said that uh, we will not be pursuing this in the current format that it has been presented. Some people are claiming a victory for Manchester United and for Liverpool in that uh, the proposal they, they made and drafted have now been certainly incorporated into, uh, in principle, a review of English football at all levels, uh, in terms of the league, that is, in the 92 clubs, and will go forward in the next weeks and months with regards to changing structures, finances and governance, um, as well as the issues of broadcast payments and uh, the uh, money which is distributed amongst each of the leagues and the individual clubs. I guess, Duncan, I, I mean, I see this as, um, like, I think United and Liverpool always knew they were going to be shot down in flames on this one because they had effectively gone behind the majority of the Premier League clubs' backs and discussed this. I think what was interesting and maybe an interesting sideline was the FA were involved as well. But um, I think quite simply, United and Liverpool have got what they wanted, and that is they have brought the discussion to the table and they have forced the 20 clubs plus the FA plus the Premier League and, of course, the EFL. Um, although what Paris' role in this might be going forward, I think, is very, very debatable. Um, but they've got what they wanted in the sense that they've brought the debate to the table and they now have the opportunity to try and at least find a compromise agreement which suits them better in terms of the cash distribution as well as a uh, number of clubs who are in the PL and also what the future of the EFL is regarding um, the trickle-down of broadcast money and any other revenues. <sighs> I mean, we're looking at definitely a changing face of English football and the most probably prominent one since the Premier League was introduced in 1993. How long do you think this is going to take, Duncan? Do you think it's going to be a... a protracted process or do you believe that this has to be swift simply because um, the COVID environment means that EFL clubs who clearly are in favour of the bailout need the money as quickly as possible? From what I understand, it needs to be swift in terms of getting some money from the Premier League to the EFL. Um, I think we said on Tuesday's podcast that the, the best proposal prior to this big picture leak from the Premier League had been for £40 million of immediate cash um, with a total of £160 million, but the rest of it being comprised of loans, which the EFL were not happy with, did not feel was sufficient and were much more attracted to the £250 million figure that um, Rick Parry, uh, fronting for Liverpool, Manchester United and other members of the big six were uh, offering to the EFL as a carrot for signing away their voting rights, essentially, um, handing over control of the structure of the league, um, entry to the league, vetoes over new club owners, um, size of, of divisions, 
most importantly, um, broadcasting revenues, a broadcasting deal for all four divisions, which would be controlled by the big six. Um, Pay-per-view games, which would suit the big six and and might allow them to maximize the revenue differences from broadcast income between them and other clubs in the Premier League and and the rest of the pyramid. Um, As you say, what Manchester United and Liverpool and um, co-conspirators have managed to do is put this discussion on the table to the Premier League, the rest of the Premier League, that they have the power um, to leave. They are looking at European Super League. They want more of the money from broadcast revenues. They want more control over the structure of the league to enable them to play both in England and to play in Europe. Um, Things have got to change. Uh, so get yourself used to it and let's talk it through and uh, and see where we end up. And, and from what I understand, Liverpool and Manchester United are very happy with the outcome of this week. As you say, they never went on record with any of this, um, but everyone in English football knows that they, this is what they want. Rick Parry was the front man and Rick Parry has taken the, the big hit from being the man trying to, to sell that story um, that idea to English football, the media, to supporters, which the, the latter two categories it's gone down very badly with. It went down very well with much of the EFL, but badly with the, the, the people that pay for the games at present, at least the, the domestic share of, of paying for the games. Um, and I think, as we said on Tuesday, it's an inevitable process where the, the biggest clubs in English football will leverage the power they have, will take advantage of the, the difficult economic situation English football's in because of COVID, but was in prior to COVID regardless, to get more of the money to themselves, to get the structure changed in a way that suits them, to set the path up so that they can get themselves integrated into the European Super League, which incidentally, um, you see the 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 chairman of Juventus, um, Andrea Agnelli, who's been driving this Super League proposal for some time now, talking this week about how the the biggest clubs in Italy have never been more united in preparing for change in the way football is structured in that country and Europe in general. It's and, and I think if you talk to the people who own clubs in the, the lower tier of the Premier League, they, they recognise this as well. They recognise that they do not, they can resist, but they do not have the strength um, to say things remain as they are, where we take um, you know, the, the difference between the top club in the Premier League and the bottom club in the Premier League in terms of revenue from broadcast uh, money uh, for the Premier League only at present is 1.8 times. Um, that is not going to hold. The gap is going to get bigger. The league is going to get less competitive. The bigger clubs are going to get wealthier. Um, and there will be this discussion and this attempt to restructure the pyramid um, to try and keep that area of football afloat. But ultimately, I don't think the big clubs care about that. Uh, their priority is looking after themselves. And if uh, if there's remains 72 league teams below them, fine. If that reduces to 40 or 50, then, well, that's fine too. 
Well, having spoken to one Premier League chairman and owner, Duncan, um, his uh, outlook was very pragmatic and realistic. Uh, he was part of that meeting uh, with the Premier League um, 20 clubs on Wednesday via Zoom and said that he believed that Manchester United and Liverpool had achieved their goal. They had put up what he called, and I inverted commas, a faceless fight uh, mm. in terms of the way that they approached the uh, particular um, campaign that they had waged. Clearly, it was the case that they had uh, been working on things for a long time, but they found someone in Rick Parry to uh, basically be the face of it, and it meant they could be um, take a back seat and uh, therefore allow things to play out in front of them. It was interesting that the um, information regarding the project, big picture, came out via the press as well, uh, and, there, and not in an official statement by anyone. But then, of course, became the hot topic of debate before being, um, yeah, basically uh, torpedoed below the waterline uh, by that meeting on Wednesday. But, they said, the uh, outcome was what United and Liverpool wanted, i.e. they brought the debate into uh, the environment of the Premier League and now is a live issue. And, of course, with the COVID environment, uh, as our good friend um, Roger Mitchell said, is the Franz Ferdinand, not the band, but the actual Franz, Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austro-Hungary, um, uh, presented in the lead-up to the First World War, is the catalyst for making this into an issue. Absolutely. You know, look, at, if you think about it, they've used Rick Parry to put this message out, uh, we will pay you. £250 million if you give us control of English football. And the answer came back, yeah, we'll take that. I mean, it's like, imagine the Tory government offered each voter in the UK £20,000 in return for the franchise, for the vote being limited to individuals with wealth of more than £100 million only. How many people would accept that in a COVID environment? I guess some people would say, yeah, fine, give me the money, I don't need to vote. Nothing ever happens when I vote anyway. You, these guys stay rich and they, they control it, so what's the point? But what would they, the outcome be if, if a big chunk of the population agreed to that and took the money and, and handed over control to only those with, with the most wealth? It's a good point, Duncan, to be honest. And one, yeah, which I think we're going to see the consequences of over the next uh, few months because, there's, as you said, there needs to be a swift solution to the shortfall in terms of bailout to the EFL clubs. And that has to come from the Premier League uh, because the government has refused to do so. I think it's interesting that the Premier League has refused uh, to bailouts until after the transfer window. And I have to stress this, uh, that we are recording in transfer window open time, so before 5pm on Friday, uh, and we're going to come on to another subject about that in a second, uh, but it's a case that they want to means test 
championship clubs in particular for fees that they receive in the next uh, few hours regarding um, what they would then receive in a bailout. So um, that's where we are in terms of you know assessing the finances in English football. But something has to be done. It will be done, uh, but it will be done in a way that suits the Premier League. And um, just one footnote to all of this, uh, Gary Neville has uh, been involved with a group of seven other people in putting forward an alternative plan. Um, however, uh, the fact that the basis of that plan rests, Duncan, on the setting up of uh, an individual and independent body to rule, or sorry, to govern English football, seems to me to be very, very fantastical in the sense that there's no way you can um, expect people in control, i.e. the FA, the Premier League and the EFL, to cede that control to an independent body when there's so much money and status to protect. Well, who goes on the independent body? That, that, that's the question. How, how do you decide? Well, we, assume, we assume the eight people who have been, you know, been on the advisory panel. Yeah, a self-selected advisory panel who decide they want to be the independent board that yes. controls yeah. football. Yeah, that, that that's going to work really well. Um, you know, <laughs> Gary Neville put him on an independent board controlling English football. He's a, a co-owner of a club who um, have outspent everyone else in their division and um, just this week sacked a manager who was unbeaten um, in in a long run of, of, of recent games um, and obviously has a very, very strong interest in the success of one particular English club. I think there's quite a few people commenting on the idea that Gary Neville should be um, involved in, in controlling the direction of English football by saying he's... he's uh, He's not the most independent individual around, and and certainly when he he got was in a position to control the direction of English football on the pitch, i.e. as a assistant manager to the England national team, he didn't exactly cover himself in glory in that position. Gary, we know you're a big fan of the podcast, so um, if you want to come back and give us your version of events and your opinions on this, then as ever. The invitation is open to you. To round off today's podcast, I would just like to ask Duncan to update us on the position of Joe Roden of Swansea City, who Duncan told us on Tuesday had been recommended highly by Gareth Bale to Josie Mourinho as someone who certainly could make it as a Tottenham Hotspur player. And Duncan, as I said, we are recording this before the window closes, so we do um, you know, stress that to our listeners. Uh, but can you just give us the latest, please, so that we can uh, look at this and uh, and know what's going on? Well, Swansea City have been holding to their asking price of eighteen million pounds. Um, Daniel Levy had said that was impossible uh, as of this morning. Mourinho wasn't confident that uh, the deal would go through because the numbers were too high. We'll we'll see. I mean, it's happening now. Uh, Joe Roden has made it clear it's through, I think, people close to him that he's ready to take a medical and he wants that move, which obviously helps. Daniel Levy is the um, has a long history of taking uh, deals to the wire and using whatever 
leverage he can to get the best out of a deal. Um, I think in this situation where you have a player who wants to come and you have a club in the championship who have dubious finances because of COVID, uh, Daniel Levy will be rubbing his hands with glee and thinking, I can, I can maybe um, get this through at the deadline and, and complete um, the squad build for Mourinho, which is one he is now you know, very happy with. He wants that centre-back and he does need to improve the defence, but he's talked today about the attack he has as being the strongest, at least in terms of numbers, that he's ever had in his long managerial career. Um, and, and talked in general about the window and, and saying, in my analysis of the team's needs and evolution, we were talking about different targets, but I never thought we would go as far as we did, especially because of the moment. And I can only praise what the board did for the team. And I think that reflects a, a degree of confidence um, from Mourinho, from the people around him and at Tottenham that they are in a, in a good place at the moment and, uh, and have the chance to, to do something impressive in this uh, English season and Europa League season. Well, everyone who knows us knows that we love a bit of leverage with five minutes to go of the transfer window deadline and we are expecting some drama um, today which of course we will update, report and bring you all the information in next week's podcasts. It is that time of the week we award the donkey. Um, and this week we could not look beyond Fenway Sports Group. And also the fact it was John Lennon's birthday. So in honour of John Lennon and in dishonour of FSG, given Project Big Picture. We are naming this week's donkey the FSG Award for Imagine All the People Living Their Lives in Peace. Uh, clearly this is um, sarcastic and ironic because what we're actually saying is FSG bared their teeth uh, very much in terms of being venture capitalists in their involvement in Project Big Picture, um, defying the spirit of Shankly, and by that I mean both the group itself, the supporters group, as well as the great man himself, who was a committed socialist by effectively trying to stage a money and power grab uh, in English football uh, using Liverpool FC, who pride themselves on being a socialist club and being for the people. So um, when they say this means more, what they actually mean is more <laughs> means more. Um, Duncan, I'm going to open the golden envelope here. There we go. Oh, we've got some better. Oh, yeah, some good nominations here, Duncan. I think you might have a bit of a conundrum here to solve with regards to who gets the uh, golden statuette. Um, but first nomination is FSG themselves. Um, for the uh, John Henry, if, if you want, let's take him as the figurehead for trying to trademark uh, Liverpool, the city's name, in order to make more money for Liverpool Football Club, as well as, of course, the... Um, failed and embarrassing um, situation which arose when they tried to furlough 
uh, club staff during the lockdown. Joe Glazer, uh, or just let's say the Glazers in general, Duncan, for taking uh, in excess of £1 billion out of Manchester United during their tenure at the club. Andrew, we're talking here sarcastically about imagine all the people. Uh, so these are things of great greed. And then the last one, um, slightly historical, but very hysterical. Um, Richard Scudamore, former CEO of the Premier League and someone who some people would say would actually be a better person to be dealing with the current uh, crisis in English football, but of course now uh, retired officially, but still advising on the boards of several influential companies in football and his idea for the 39th game to take place in other countries in order to generate more cash for said organisation, the EPL, and also, of course, uh, to bring more broadcasting money into the Premier League. Duncan, I leave it to you to make your choice. Well, um, three good nominations out of the Goldman Sachs golden envelope. Um, <laughs> How did you know that the Goldman Sachs provide envelopes? <laughs> I think Scudamore, um, I think he gets a, gets a buy on this because I'm sure when he came up with the 39th game, he was just thinking of people around the world living in perfect peace, watching Premier League matches in, in their, their own area uh, of the of the globe. Um, FSG gets quite a hat-trick, really, um, furloughing, trying to furlough their staff. Um, Project Big Picture being the, the main instigators behind that and then trade, trying to trademark, copyright the name Liverpool. It's, um, it's impressive corporate greed on their part. Um, and uh, and all, all credit to the Liverpool supporters for objecting to all of those things and uh, putting them back in their place. But the, for the scale of it, I think the award has to go to the Glazers, taking over a billion pounds out of one football club in terms of interest payments, fees to um, facilitate their leverage buyout of the club, um, dividends, directors' payments, and other ways of extracting uh, money from a football club is is quite a special achievement. And obviously, they too integral on project big picture and uh, and their eyes fixated on the billions to follow. Once they get that further control over English football and get into the European Super League, which is their aim. Joe Glazer, we will be packaging up your figure. And we'll be sending it to you for your mantelpiece. I'm sure it's um, going to take pride of place since there are not very many trophies in the Manchester United trophy cabinet of late since you sacked Josie Mourinho. If you liked what you heard today on the transfer window, then please leave a five-star review on iTunes. As you know, that expands our community. You could also subscribe to the Transfer Window podcast on YouTube. Please turn all notifications on and you will get every uh, podcast as it's published. And please, of course, join the discussion with us both there and on at Transfer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter. Personally, Duncan is on at Duncan Castles. I'm at on Garbo SJ. 
Until next week, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.